You are listening to Problematic Radio. I'm chilled. What is the nature and character of America? What does it mean to be an American? These are questions that have consumed this country from its inception. And since the pandemic, that fire has been raging. But it can be very hard to discern the nature of a thing from within it. And I think in the middle of a complicated problem, a pair of fresh eyes are always helpful. Hey Mike, thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. I'm Anna and I'm originally from Hungary. I live in the UK and right now I'm in San Francisco because life is weird <laughs> and really awesome. <laughs> it's Anna Gott, a writer, an entrepreneur and just an incredibly smart person. She grew up in Hungary back when it was still a communist country. So I've always been interested not just in her perspective of America, but of the West more broadly. Today, Marxism is very much in vogue among people who have had the spectacular privilege of never having suffered under a Marxist government. So I think Anna's is a perspective we all need to hear right now. She and I talked about her background and her family's history in Hungary, navigating the past, the kind of emotional, intellectual complications person experiences when they have ancestors who maybe didn't share our values. We talked about the nature of communist revolution by intellects and academics on behalf of a working class, performative millennial rebellion, which is to say, I think our protests have actually been a kind of rule following, not breaking, as we mimic our baby boomer parents, you know, still looking for their approval in our 20s and 30s, and fighting back against stasis. Super important note, this interview is almost a year old, so Anna and I unfortunately never had a chance to talk about the world post-COVID. And that is, I think, especially apparent when we get into the nature of protest among millennials. So please keep that in mind, and I promise I'll have Anna back on for around two in the imminent future. Her Twitter handle is at the Anna, two N's, got, G-A-T. From Nation Factory, I'm Mike Solana, and this is Problematic. Cool. So, I mean, I wanted to bring you in here and talk about, obviously, the show is problematic. I'm extremely interested in the kinds of things we're not allowed to talk about and the different contexts in which we're not allowed to talk about them. I think, you know, depending on where you are, some things are inappropriate or not allowed, not politically correct. I want to know why. I want to like dig into them and I want to talk about them, especially if I think they're important. A couple things you and I have talked about. We've talked about uh, your background growing up in a communist country and then moving west and kind of being surprised at the things you could and could not speak about, you know, in terms of socialism and capitalism. But I also love talking to you about just the difference between people in Europe and America. Yeah, I think you and I often discuss the fact that being outsiders brings with itself a lot of dangers, but at the same time, a lot of responsibility as well. That empowers you to talk about maybe more things and with great power comes great responsibility um spider-man yeah so i don't think that i i I have great power i do feel um that i do have some responsibility and try to use it i was born in 83 in budapest the daughter of crazy boomer tv people creating action and comedy tv series in a country that didn't before have action and comedy tv series and my grandparents were communists who survived the holocaust and rebuilt um, the country on communist ideals so i was always kind of stuck or interestingly suspended in this weird historical context where my 
the grandparents were, you know, nationalist Hungarians, but because everybody was a nationalist in the 30s and there was a, a romantic revival. And then the country decided that they were not citizens and should not be alive. And then they came back with a revolution or revenge to rebuild the country for the workers, which was interesting because none of my grandparents were workers, um, <laughs> which I think is kind of something that we might actually get to later in this interview. Who are you building what for? Right. Um, We're talking about socialist <laughs> systems being built ostensibly on behalf of people who are not interested in those ideals. Uh, well, it's more about the level of information, I would think. Like my grandparents, uh, daughters of educators and academics. Other parts of the family were educated peasants. Most people were really outliers in my lineage. So, you know, they put themselves through school and went to university. You know, it's a bit weird to think about this nowadays when education, you know, has such a bad rap. But like my grandparents or my great grandparents walked every morning at 4 a.m. in the snow to school for four miles. You know, it, mm -hmm. it, it was really something that you had to fight for. So I kind of come from this really strong ethos of education against which I in some way did rebel. So you're saying your grandparents were communists. They were in favor of the system. I think so, yes. And it's something of, a, of an inner conflict to me to think, was it just that my grandparents knew? So one of my grandfathers was a film star in Hungary, playing kind of the everyman of the communist regime's ideal of the peasant. So he was a, a de facto film star and in the 50s. Um, he died very young in 1968. And my other grandfather was a super educated diplomat, economist, who ended up as a diplomat and ended up being stationed in Canada and places like that um, at a time when nobody was allowed to travel. Um, so I'm, I'm often wondering, was it just a type of conformism that they knew that they were more talented than the rest and this was the way to put yourself through school and get a good job? Right, you just um, had to be a communist. Negative. You had to say you were a communist, at least. Yes, but there's actually something I'm wondering about. I'm not sure you can, you can do that. I'm not sure you can act for decades, which means, I'd, unfortunately, I can't ask them anymore. I think one of the, one of the most important pieces of art um, that, that ever come out of my uh, country um, is a film called Mephisto, which won the Oscar in 1981 um, by a guy called Istvan Sabo. It was one of those genius kind of semi-disguised stories that you could actually make a film out of in, in, in the communist regime. It's based on a, a novella by Thomas Klausmann about an actor who sells out to, to the Nazi regime to become a famous actor. And it's a complete hypocrisy. He has a an African lover and a very bohemian lifestyle um, of like typical middle Europa, mid-wars, you know, cabarets and, and liquor. But <laughs> he sells out and he has a majestic performance as, as Mephisto in, in, in Goethe's Faust. And, and in 1981, obviously, this was Sobo's take on communism. It was, but you had to make it look like you're talking about Nazism, which says, I think, a lot about how what was the real self-image of communism, that you could actually talk about communism as Nazism. So it was not necessarily that little girls running with flowers and orange growing on the Hungarian pusta type of thing that the propaganda would uh, have you have it. 
Um, so I do think that my grandparents must have believed to some degree in that system. And then my parents' generation was the rebels who went to art. Like my mother was accepted to law school, but instead she went to do uh, drama. My dad wanted to be a, an actor and then he became a, a, a TV and filmmaker. And they kind of socialized themselves in the quote-unquote communist bohemia of the 70s and 80s. Um, so I grew up in this really weird you know, generation that maybe to some people would be uh, familiar from Mrozak's play Tongo, where you have the reactionary youth, where your parents are way wilder than you could ever be. I think about how... And then what do you do? <laughs> that was globe. That was everywhere in the world, too. In the 70s, we have this weird idea in America that every generation becomes more progressive and open and crazy and rebellious and it's like not at all no way the people no. in the 70s were way 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 crazier it's like, a seesaw. you just look back and you can just watch movies from the 70s yeah. and you're like oh shit they were very they open. were liberated yeah. um millennials this generation this trash fire generation that we yeah. are a part of uh millennials are rule followers to a large degree mm. you know i even think about the way that we rebel like remember the 99 percent protest that blew up all around the place like it was like what almost 10 years ago now yeah. maybe it was around 10 years ago now i remember following those protests and thinking this kind of behavior looks like what you would do if you thought protesting was the right thing to do like you were taught in school yeah. about the baby boomers who were protesting yeah. and now you're mimicking that it wasn't actually an act of rebellion it didn't seem like that to me at all it seemed it seemed like what you were taught to do in college, like you were actually supposed yeah. to act this way. You were supposed to be going to anti-war protests. You were supposed to be going to, you know, a Wall Street protest and eat the rich and all this kind of stuff. We were given that. We yeah, were handed this. We, yeah. we, didn't, we didn't think this up. It's not a rebellion. I see a great danger. And I think it's, you know, we, we call so many things great dangers or grave dangers. But this is something where, you know, when we say, that this is a problem or, or problematic to uh, use your title, <laughs> that's really just scratching the surface. When you have a generation where there's nothing to rebel against in a virtuous way, when you're not youth that has a moral duty to rise up against something to the benefit of all, which I think would be the purpose of youth in the most beautiful way. You're supposed to have children who think you're a dumbass in certain uh, aspects and to tell you that. You want to look at your son and daughter and think, wow, I never thought about it that way. Thank you, please take over, here's the throne. <laughs> you know, or, or at least put up a fight for it. When you have, when this is subverted, when you have people you know, in their 70s representing the most liberal ideas in a society, and they are the establishment. And a, mo a younger generation filled with the ambition to rebel and build something new is facing something more liberal than itself. I think we haven't seen the end of the, the what type of problem that breeds. We assume that the, the, the rebellion would have to be what much more conservative or something, but that's not really true. It's like if, to use the proper definition of the word liberal or free, if the older generation right now has more liberal ideas, and I think they, I think they do. I think for all of the boomers screwing stuff up, I think they really do believe in things like free speech and openness and yeah. you know fr freedom of association, choice. I think these are things that they really, that generation really did care about um, and really does still care about. 
I think the way that you rebel is to be illiberal. And you may have the veneer of like nice guy, you know, contemporary definition of liberalism. Like you have the right social ideas or whatever, but perhaps your behavior is much more, I don't know, like totalitarian. I mean, there are people who, who are really focused right now from all political polls on controlling other people, being in control. That's a scary new thing to me. Mm. I've never seen it like this before and I don't like it at all. But maybe that's the rebellion and that's scary if that's the rebellion that we're looking at. I, I really agree with your point and I think I, I would like to add something to that. Liberal ideas are filled with poetry, like all beautiful ideas upon which we have built our civilization. But they always clash with reality. One of the problems with a generation in their 70s representing the most liberal ideas in a society is that, you know, in the past 55 years, probably some of their things have become compromised because they were just real people living in reality and they have had to make compromises, which means that, of course, we do have older people representing liberal ideas, but those ideas seem a bit tainted. It's logical, they are tainted by reality. And... If the person that my generation rebels against is Bill Maher, then that, <laughs> that rebellion will be like that. You will take specifics about the Bill Maher type of person, quote unquote, and build up a rebellion about that. And that will be more controlling because that guy is about uncontrolling things. And yeah. to me, that's really... And when I say we're only seeing the beginning of that, what I mean is a fatherless generation, when it starts exhibiting problems in its youth having no direction with its being more reactionary in an unnatural way uh, with its uh, you know rediscovery of incredibly conservative ideas because that's the only thing it can discover i mean that generation will grow up that generation will you know we will be the the leaders of the world in the next decades and what i what comes to mind when i say fatherless generation is is obviously the mid world war central european you know, a generation that caused those political waves. You had de facto generations who didn't have fathers because the fathers died in the First World War. And what happens when you, when you, you, you don't have a father, you don't have, you know, a head of the family who will give you a, a beneficial structure with which you can interpret the world and then you can, in a positive way, positive some way, rebel against him when the time comes and everybody's happy. Mm -hmm. You have no comforting structure but you have the bohemia and then when that's the, the the establishment against which you will rebel then we see what happens you we see what ideas people come up with when it's liberal berlin nightlife or or rebutting capitalism that a youth in the 1930s rebels against when you talk about things like this in the uk i mean what what is the what is the reception there for ideas like this i mean what, how has that been for you <laughs> I don't talk about these ideas in the UK. I'm still so shocked by some of their ideas that I just listen because I, I, I don't always believe what I'm hearing. What do you mean? to get? <laughs> I mean, I come from a place where a lot of good things in life are not taken for granted. We don't have much money. We don't have, you know, uh, certain ecosystems that would produce wonderful, sustainable innovations that could be turned into flourishing businesses. I think these small nation states are famous for exporting talent. You know, when I first moved to the UK, I was quite, I was quite taken with its wealth and how well organized the whole thing seemed to be with all 
its imperfections, obviously. And <laughs> as I was discovering the skyscrapers and the GDP, I was also discovering what um, the locals um, thought about it um, and how, what was the accepted way or the received way of talking about these things amongst my or people with my kind of educational background or socioeconomic background, um, which would be... I don't know, broke intelligentsia. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> broke smart people. Yeah, broke smart Love people. It. You know, like uh, like Berlin. Um, Berlin is, uh, uh, how do they call it? Poor but sexy. <laughs> so um, I was shocked. Like, the first day I, w- I was walking um, into Goldsmiths where I was at on a scholarship, I saw these two blonde kids inviting me to the Goldsmiths Marxist Society. Oh my God. And my jaw completely dropped. I, I, where I come from, you... I mean, this would equal somebody, I don't know, inviting me to the Third Reich Appreciation Society. Right, it's, it's, so it's, it's something Marx I is just... associated with like horror in <laughs> Eastern Europe. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like tens of millions of people died and, <laughs> um, you know, and then we're still not over it. So, <laughs> yeah, it's too soon, let's say. I tried to explain to them that it's horribly offensive and, and not offensive in the sense that, oh, you know, I read somewhere on The Guardian that there are two people in the world that would be offended by this. But this is... Something that, you know, it seems to be like a factual thing that maybe you don't want to propagate these ideas. That was kind of a shock to me that that this is not only accepted, but incredibly widespread in the UK. This and general anti-Semitism, I think, were the two things that really, really shocked me. Anti-Semitism in, yeah. in the UK? Oh, yeah. I think it's worse than Eastern Europe. In what ways? How does this manifest? How have you experienced this? I'm not fully qualified to talk about it. And I'm also Jewish, so I'm also not super unbiased, uh, so just as a caveat. <laughs> um, I think it, it, it's masked as anti-Israelism that probably stems from a lost colony and the problematic feelings about that, matched with the fact that so much of the British intelligentsia are left-wing Marxists. And, you know, there are some overlaps. But I don't believe it. I don't believe... So the passion with which people are anti-Israel in the UK feels a bit more tribal to me, having kind of grown up in that environment. It is it is so... I mean, even in the US, you really... It is not so widespread, the anti-Israel stuff. I would say it's pretty confined to like the far left-wing political sphere, like the Ocasio-Cortezes of the world, mm. who just like really, really, really can't stand Israel. And you look at it and you think... Why are we so focused on, I mean, it's like we're talking about human rights violations in Israel, but not, what, China? Why is that Mm. not a thing that we're talking about? Why are we not talking about the entire, what, the minority Muslim population of China that is in, like, concentration camps right now? That seems not to be as big of an issue for the Ocasios of the world. Like, why? It's such a, Israel is such a small country, affecting, it's like such a small area with such a small population, and, and we are relentless in talking about that, that does seem, yeah, that seems weird to me. I, th- I like to say that there are three types of racism allowed and encouraged in the United Kingdom. One is anti-Eastern Europeanism, uh, which is really strange because Eastern Europe imported its best brains into the UK, the most educated people, but because of um, certain propagandistic uh, forces, they like to equate the Eastern European with the otherwise incredibly hardworking taxpaying, uh, you know, carpenters and, and cleaners. I had experiences where I would pitch my startup and somebody said like, oh, with that accent, it's so weird that you're not bringing me a drink. Oh my God. Um, and that was in shortage. So I was like, okay. The other uh, form of racism that is very widespread is a belief in astrology. 
Um, so I actually had meetings where somebody would tell me that they only work with Leos. No, and I, that is not. Like, I'm I'm serious, and it's so shocking to me because I mean, that I, is a form of racism. You say that based on how you were born, you will exhibit certain types of behaviors. That's and you, wild. I just can't. I have such a hard time believing that people really believe. I know that it seems like people really believe in 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 their sign, but I can't imagine that people really wouldn't work with like a Cancer or a Scorpio. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's people. Want, some people want to have some kind of um, negative tribal associations and they will use whatever is available. And the, third, and the third uh, form of racism that is allowed is, is anti-Semitism. You know, I mean, to me, this is really unacceptable to have... No, I, I don't want to say unacceptable. If somebody has a deeply held belief that, I, that offends me or hurts me or even causes disadvantage to people like me in any way, but they can defend it and that's their opinion be my guest. You know, I always say I'm much less offended by reading Henry Miller because he's clean what he, it's you know you know what he thinks about women. I'm far more offended when I read Hemingway who <laughs> pretends that, you know, the charm of Maria was that uh, she was um, such a strong anti-fascist and not just that she was the only young woman on that mountain. <laughs> like I just want some honesty, right? Be honest to me and I will I, we will be fine. So to me, the hypocrisy around anti-Semitism in the UK is quite shocking and that I have to be in conversations where somebody would say, oh, no, no, so, but Jews, you know, like, you're artistic and, and scientific achievements, but, and when you point out that maybe, first of all, have you ever met Jews? Like, I don't meet Jews in the UK, so where are they? <laughs> like, <laughs> clearly, you know more than, than I do. Second, you know, and if you kind of dig into it, like, how dare you say something like this while being loudly anti-racist against everybody else, then they will say, oh, but Israel. Oh my God. Yeah, and it is. It's just... So like, it's the, the thing that gives you permission to have completely unacceptable and unfactual and unargumentable ideas. I do think Americans like to beat themselves up over how racist they are. We are obsessed with our own perceived moral flaws. On this issue... I think we really don't, I think this country is not actually like nearly as anti-Semitic as the kind of stuff that we see in Europe, which and is not something... And you're also not very sexist, I have to say, as an outsider. Well, I, I, I mean, mean, I'm Eastern European, and if a guy doesn't have his, you know, hand on your butt, then it's because he's not standing close enough. So, you know, that's also why I'm saying that you have, one of the good things about having lived in multiple places is you can actually compare yeah. and say that your guys actually aren't doing quite a good job. Yeah, we, this is a, man, a very problematic topic, <laughs> is to say that things are not very sexist in America. It's like definitely something I'm you sorry, can't say out loud right now. Everything is relative. No, it's, mm, I think one of the things that people tend to misunderstand about sexism, and that's very true in how we talk about sexism in technology is that most discrimination is a question of license and power. I worked 12 years in, in you know, cultural industries and you have, you know, people who have the most money and the least transparency about their actions. If they have moral shortcomings, those will be lived out very openly then of course you have the problem that it incentivizes people who already have the moral shortcomings to aspire to be in positions where they can actually do things. And then you have to think, can we actually create more transparency so these people are incentivized to become gardeners and leave out these instincts on you know, growing beautiful roses. 
but I don't think it's a, it's a sector problem. I know this is like a fact that is so unpopular. So I, I like to say that these are not unpopular opinions. These are unpopular facts. <laughs> <laughs> what are some other unpopular? Actually, <laughs> no, because I, I, I want to cap off the UK thing first. In terms of, yeah, the kinds of racism or the kinds of, let's say, let's broaden it, the kinds of bigotries that are allowed. You were telling me about the diversity quotas that you've experienced? So I think, as I mentioned, one of the good things about having lived in different cultures is that you see these different invisible rules, invisible walls, and feel differently maybe when you bump into one. Where I come from, um, you can say that Hungary is an incredibly traditional place in terms of how we talk about gender um, to the point that our wonderful dictator recently banned gender studies as a political act um, even though there were like three people studying it in the entire country and they were at central european university anyway so we have this you know go back to the kitchen type of uh, discussion about women there is even a horrible meme about it that says which means that your womb should be working not your mouth Oh my God. Um, it's, it's a hypocritical take. Obviously, when you look at actual, you know, scientists and doctors and engineers, you don't really see a gender disparity or at least that gender disparity is smaller than in the West. And a lot of households run on the income of, of the woman breadwinner. And while, you know, a woman will still be doing much of the housework and, and, and the child rearing work around the house. So there is this really interesting um, situation in gender. But when it comes to racism, when you come from a small landlocked Central European country that only recently opened up to different types of people, uh, most of racism stems from a fear of the unknown. I think the most racist people that I've, I've, I met in Hungary never actually met a black person or a Jewish person, they have no idea. They, it's, it's something that is, is an expression of their desire to keep things as they are. And I think we will talk more about um, that infatuation with the stasis in Europe in general. But when you go to, you know, when I lived in France, I went to high school there. And then now I live um, in the UK where I went to university. There I see a lot of uh, racist demagogy stemming from a misinterpreted encounter with people who may be different from you, with a lot of uh, historical baggage of the, you know, the colonization undertaken by these countries that has not been discussed as openly as, for example, Germany would make sure that they come to terms with their own 20th century, basically. You know, in France and in, 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 in the UK, you have bad propaganda building on an experience of coexistence. And I think that's very, very different. And then you have the US, which is kind of a third type of problem, right? A country built on a different ideal where you have had a historical event that so doesn't fit into this ideal that it puts the whole thing into question, that all men are created equal. And then, oh, but dad, what about those centuries? And then answer the question. Right. So there is a contradiction. I I do see America as a land of contradictions, as Leonard Cohen, you know, would say the land of the best and the worst. Um, Maybe he was using a bit of poetic license there. I don't think it's the land of the worst in any way. Uh, But every time I come here, I look at really, really interesting paradoxes. And I think when we look at current political situation, when we look at AOC and people like that, it's people trying to deal with this contradiction in different ways. What do you think the core contradiction is? Or is there sort of like a, a contradiction of contradictions, maybe the generation of them? Or, I mean, is there one maybe just that stands out? 
historically, surely it would be all men are created equal and slavery. That's I think that's clear. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that's sort of the original sin of the country. Yeah, it is the absolutely. one thing that just from the beginning, you know, we have this you know, horrible. But you dark have to process on. it. There's no other way. I mean, you guys have 300 million plus people. You have to know how to live together. What I see as the the, the contradiction of the contradictions would be say I always think that the formation of countries resemble weddings. There, there's one, you know, there's a, a glory box. There is the dowry of the ideals or the sins uh, with which the the union begins, and you don't always simultaneously encounter all the things that are in the box. But you know, coincidence or a talented leader can always pull them out, and it's it's yours. It's like the the baggage, but not necessarily in the bad way. So based on that, I think that the, the, the core equation on which this country runs is definitely individualism versus the communal. Right. This is the, I, I agree. This is the core political tension for sure. And maybe even the cultural tension as well. This is how you built this country. I mean, every time I look around in this country, I see that, oh, my God, this country is a project. This is an experiment. This yeah. is an ongoing. This is a startup. Yep. Yeah, it's not like not... Europe where you have a stasis that is always being repaired a little bit. Here you have a first principle ground up project and everybody who lives and works in this country is participating in running that project. To yeah. me, that's absolutely <laughs> yeah, mind blowing. Like trying our best over here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, and, it, and of all the experiments that started like this, America is by far, by orders of magnitude, the most successful. It's a power law. It, absolutely. And this is, this is mind-blowing to me. And I think probably for good projects to be able to run, and this is probably the same for businesses, probably the same for a symphony, you have to have an exciting tension of two particles circling each other all the time in the, in the core of what this whole thing came from. And here, it's, it, to me, it's creating something together, but every man for his own. Yeah, and how do you how and I think this is why this country has created these outliers and attracted the outliers because an outlier is always in like a Nietzschean sense the epic hero, right? Who represents the community? Achilles represented Greece. He wasn't like all Greek people. You're all racists. I hate you, and I'm going to write a blog. He was like, <laughs> I'm the best that you produced. I love you. Send me to this war. And to me, that idea is proving to be very, very, very successful. But at the same time, this will always bring in the CISO effect, right? So you will have eras or, or maybe even eons where it will be more communal and then you will have periods when it's more individualistic. I think the internet is the, the prime example of the, the crowdsourced place where everybody can discover on their own and create their own categories. What's interesting, the internet is also sort of a contradiction. So on the one hand, it's an extremely equalizing. So on the, on the, yeah, on the one hand, it is it is extremely. Well, I would I was going to start with liberating. I mean, it allows yeah. you to to go in and and I remember as a kid, you know, I'm 15 when I had the internet for the first time, or maybe 14, 15, and just kind of pile driving into my interests, finding weird message boards and things where I could talk about stuff that no one in my hometown cared about, no one in my classrooms cared about. But at the same time, as the internet has, has matured, I think. It's also become this engine for normalizing and 
equalizing. And I don't mean that in a good way. I mean, it's like we are very aware of what the group thinks and what will make the group mad. Social media is not really a way to express individualism. It's a way to become like everyone else, even the sort of like function, the like retweet function. You know, it's like the most popular people on the internet are the best at making the most people happy. It's mm. the opposite of individualism. It's this weird, th- and that's, I mean, that's now, that's now the sort of substrate we live inside of is not, yeah, it's no longer a place where you go to be liberated, I don't think. Um, this is maybe the weirdest thing in the world. For years, it was just sort of a cliche to be like, the internet's amazing. Mm. And I'm looking at it more and more, and I'm thinking, yeah, there are tremendous benefits to having so much information at our fingertips, but... What about these costs? These like yeah. these these costs and in individuality that we're seeing increasingly. I don't I don't know. And it's it's more than that. It's not just that, right? It's like there people on the left care about privacy. That's what they're talking about right now. I think it's a guys. I think they what they really care about is destroying big companies. But certainly that's come up. It's like the, it's a privacy hit. There's a hit I think on individuality. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know how mm-hmm. I feel about the internet these days. Yeah. Obviously maybe not obviously. I'm taking it, right? Like, yeah. I'm not going to go out here with the fire take like, no. oh, the internet is bad. But I don't know that it's quite as indisputably great as... As it was supposed to be. There are these serious downsides. Sure. And we have to address them. And I have two things, I think, to add to that. One would be that the rebellion against corporations has these two very interesting angles, right? Or, or points of approach. One is that... Corporations are, quote-unquote, coming apart in the sense that we are abandoning that form of everyday work. We want to work, all, every workplace tries to look at like startups. We are rethinking how we coordinate within companies. And the big corporations of the 50s and 60s as we knew them will change a lot in the next decades. I think that's like the good, creative, disruptive way of looking at it. And then you have the rhetorical rebellion against corporations, which to me is a symptom of the fatherless generation who doesn't have an authority figure against whom to to rebel in a constructive way. So you had to find something that still seems to be oppressing you. And then in some ways we might be attacking something, a beneficial force, with the massive caveat that obviously climate change puts the role of great corporations into a very different light. So insofar as these rhetorical waves focus on those things that where, where we can prove that corporations are creating harm or causing harm, then I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> I think they have a lot of responsibility. So the other thing is, I'm a bit conflicted over how we talk about social media because there are different things at play here and, and we, we tend to like bundle them up together. One thing is that social media was created when a populist generation arrived on the internet. Gen X was not a populist generation, even though they kept re-electing Bill Clinton for some reason. But social media was created by a generation where a lot of ways to connect with other people in the classroom, in, you know, the whatever hobby group you belong to, it was becoming dysfunctional. So you went on the internet and you said, well, if I can't make friends in the egalitarian way, then I'm going to build platforms where I will make friends, right? Right. It's like, nobody invites me to a party, so I'm going to throw a party. This is what social media was about. So it's, by definition, populist format. And I I really love your argument, because basically what you said was that it turns everybody into a populist. 
So in the glory box, quote unquote, of social media in its founding document, it says that I'm a populist and here I invite you sort of for free to also become populists. And that's true. But is a populist not an individualist? I think that's a great question. Because just because I'm pleasing people, is that not... I always say like... You said before, <laughs> you said in the context of communism and your grandparents, yeah. you didn't believe that people could act for that for that long, for that many decades. There's a book by Kurt Vonnegut called Mother Night. It's oh, yes. one of my all-time favorites. And this is the core question that, that I think he's raising. It's can someone... And in this book, this guy is a spy for many years and he ends up... He's speaking these horrific Nazi propaganda lines on the radio by day, but he's a spy. He's working for the West, trying to liberate, uh, you know, the enslaved peoples of the world. But even still, like, over time, like, the things that he's said has helped in some ways the Nazi effort. So does it matter that he's lying? Is mm. like, it, it, does it matter that he's lying? Is he still a Nazi in some, in some way? Yeah. And, and then it's also like, do you not become the version of yourself that you talk about over mm. and over and over again? Well, it's Hannah Arendt's big Kantian question, right? Uh, what does it matter what you thought or what your categorical imperative was if the outcome is uh, millions dead? So one of the reasons why I keep thinking about both the current mental state of Europe, which I find very, very troubling, and also trying to process my grandparents' history. And I think Eastern Europe still is, in many, many ways, the heir of the socialist era. I think if you drive people to commit original sins, to kind of go back to your metaphor, then what will be their moral high ground ever again in their life? One of the things that I, I keep noticing as I work, you know, I work as a writer, I work in technology now and, and talk to people all the time and trying to understand what is going on in their minds. And two main things that I keep running into, and they actually give me a lot of hope. One is that every person cares most about living with dignity. So having a life that you can be proud of, whatever that means to you, is indispensable for any human being, from age zero probably until you die. And in any system that takes away this dignity, or that questions this dignity, or that questions that you want dignity, you will probably act out in some way. Western ideas about dictatorships are just absolutely missing the point. Every time I watch The Handmaid's Tale, for example, where you have heroes rising against a long-term oppressive system, I remember my grandparents. So one of the things that dictatorships do, and one of the, the things why I do think you have to talk about everything, it has to be transparent, we can't build religions inside democracies that make so many things anathema and that create, you know, a, a class of priests that will uphold those, those taboos, is that dictatorships destroy these lines of good and bad. Everybody is an accomplice. You can't, you know, make money in a morally questionable way, serving a morally questionable regime, and then feed your son with that money in a virtuous way. And then is that son a fatherless son if one of the purpose of, you know, having parents in the beautiful human tribe is to have moral guidance? If you take away this dignity and the sense of, of having a moral high ground from people, then you will have people living for many, many decades who no longer have that. 
lot throughout this conversation we've talked about really the differences between two different cultures and then also to a certain extent the way that the western world is kind of killing itself slowly uh sort of like self-hatred with which it i don't know speaks about itself and and acts maybe one of the most controversial things you can say right now is that actually we're really good like we are a force for good in the world america is a good place uh western ideals are good ideals i don't know do you see a role do you see a leadership role for us it's like we're at this crossroads where we're kind of deciding you know do we turn back inward or not well i think europe is a great example for how you can sustain systems that don't work for a long time if you have enough resources to spend on keeping at the minimum that can go on for relatively long periods of time. It doesn't mean that it's growing. It doesn't mean that it's renewing. It doesn't mean that it has a cultural ethos that aims to produce outliers, epic heroes who will represent beloved communities and soar and and and, and innovate in, in unthinkable ways. So, so the most destructive force I see that could happen would be for other places in the West to adopt this kind of stuck situation or, or acceptance of being stuck and being happy with that. But I always I think my most controversial idea right now in 2019 is that a lot of this talk really, how to say, underestimates people's laziness in the good <laughs> sense. Like we are lazy for a reason. Laziness is there for evolutionary purposes. People like to just be. Um, I think a lot of apocalyptic talk um, today disregards the fact that you have hundreds of millions of people who are pretty chill. <laughs> and we don't really have this situation that I think Neil Ferguson so well put in civilization where, you know, everybody has head lice and is 19. So you have really testy, horny 19-year-olds making history, which is history, right? Instead, you have people, you know, um, still in uh, at university at 27, having pretty conventional lives today. But of course, there is the, the danger to that, which is that our, is our generation building a situation of, of stasis? Is this going to be something where we are just tending to the gardens left to us? Or are we going to build things? Are there still spaces left where you can just go and, you know, cause something majestic to be built in a desert? where you can, you know, bring material together in a couple of months that place will produce things and you can sell it. I think my poetry is definitely this creation from nothing ideal. Um, and I think for as long as there are enough people in the US who have that, anything can happen. Amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for having me. You are listening to Problematic.